morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter number 1. So I encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures and open to Luke chapter 1. And I will confess to you that our text today is longer. It's 20 verses. And uh, I am not sure if we will get through all of it. So we will see. My hope is to try to get through all of it, but we'll see if that ends up happening. I am going to read the entirety of the text, though, just so that we understand the story. So Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, and we'll read all the way down through verse 25, where Dr. Luke records these words. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abia, and his name and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went, incense when he went into the temple of the Lord." And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John." And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them. And remained speechless. And it came to pass that as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, once more we come to your 
text of Scripture and realize that it is sufficient to meet our needs, to feed us with the truth that our souls so desperately need. It is sufficient to remind us of our weaknesses, but also to know that our strength is found in you. And so I pray that you would cause our hearts that perhaps may have moments of wavering belief to cling desperately to Christ and to find our stability, our rock, our hope in him when we are uncertain. Help our unbelief, Lord. And we pray that this day, everything that we do and say would exalt and magnify your name even as as was sung and read earlier. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever gotten emails or text messages where you got some kind of announcement, whether it be something from Amazon saying, you know, getting a text from Amazon saying something like, hey, you are a random person selected and you won X amount of money. All you got to do is click this link and it'll take you to a form you need to fill out where we'll probably need your driver's license, social security number, things like that. And uh, you're like, yeah, no, that probably didn't happen. Or you get emails, you know, something, maybe yours goes directly to the junk folder, but somehow I don't know how to set up mine to do that, where you get an email and it says that you won the jackpot, you know, just click this link and, and you'll, you'll claim your prize. All of those things seem too good to be true, right? But then something happens that actually is true, but it's like the boy who cried wolf. You got so many of these things that were too good to be true, and you knew they couldn't possibly be true, that when something actually does happen that is true, you don't believe it at first. And this came to head for not me personally, but for one of my uncles. So in Virginia, Minnesota, there is a mall, and probably dying now, but there was a mall, and my family would go there all the time. And in that mall, as in many malls, you'll, you'll see these little, like, taped-off areas, and there'll be like a vehicle, like an ATV or a car or a pickup or something like that. And there'll be this little sign-up thing here where you fill out this card with your name and your phone number and your information, and you'll be entered into a drawing to win whatever it happens to be, the car, the ATV, whatever the case may be. So every time we would go to the mall, my mom and sisters would go somewhere, whatever stores they'd go to, frankly, I don't know. But my dad and brothers and I, we would go to like Dunham Sports, things like that. Well, every time there was these drawings, my brothers and I, when we were really really little, wanted to enter in those drawings, but we were obviously too young. So we would convince my dad to enter into those drawings. So he would fill out these cards, put all his information in. Who knows? This This was before our family had internet in the house, so the only way they could contact us was through phone number. And I'm sure having given our phone number to all these different places, my poor dad got so many phone calls. But one time, my uncle actually filled out one of those cards because in the mall, there was this, this four-door pickup truck. It was silver. And he filled out one of those cards, and, and he told my dad about it, and none of us thought anything of it because, frankly, whenever you fill out those cards, you probably realize you're not going to win, and you're going to be getting a lot of phone calls and emails. Well, my uncle got a phone call telling him, your name was selected and drawn, you won 
this pickup truck, this brand new pickup truck. And uh, he, did, he didn't really believe them at first. <laughs> he was like, what, what pickup truck are you talking about? And he ended up driving over there and come to find out he actually won a pickup truck by simply putting his name and his phone number into this drawing. And he, was, he said, well, I, he, he, he's not married. He lives alone. So he said, I don't need a pickup truck. So to my dad, Rodney, he said, hey, Rod, do you, do you want the pickup truck? And my dad's like, Sure, I'll take a new pickup truck. (laughs) So we got a new pickup truck. But the reality is is he got the phone call, and it seemed like the news was too good to be true. Like, he wasn't sure whether or not the phone call was legit. He wasn't sure if he should believe the information he was receiving. And the question for him was, will I believe that this is true, or is this, in fact, not true? Here in our text before us, which is very lengthy, we find a, a man who's given a message, a divine message, from a messenger. And the settings seem to dictate that this could not possibly be true. And his response to the message is one, perhaps, that we can easily condemn and yet unknowingly and easily ourselves commit. And so what I believe our text before us is teaching us is that we as Christians may waver in our belief at times when it comes to the promises of God, the announcements of God, the word of God, but that regardless of our feelings about it, regardless of our wavering belief, it does not change the truthfulness of what God has said. Regardless of if if I believe what God has said, regardless of what you believe God has said, regardless of whether the, the, the world around us believes what God has said, does not change the truthfulness of his message and his promises. What we're going to see in our text before us today is a man who had an informed unbelief. An informed unbelief. And I believe we are very prone to commit the same trespass and error. Nevertheless, I believe that it's instructive for us to see his failure so that we in turn can learn from it and hopefully be strengthened in our faith in the promises of God. But here's the the main idea I want you to get. It's this, that God's promises remain steadfast and secure in spite of your wavering unbelief or or your, your wavering belief whether or not you believe it or not. God's promises remain steadfast and secure. And keep this all in mind that the overarching purpose here that Luke is writing this story and frankly his entire first volume of this two-volume set in Luke and Acts, he's writing it to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the answer is found going back even before Jesus is born to a situation that happened months before the angel even appears to Mary. So with that in mind, I want us to just kind of walk through the text and then draw some applications at the end. And like I said, we'll see how far we get today. We may end up turning this into a two-part sermon, depending on how slowly I go through this. Let's begin, first of all, by looking at the setting. In verse 5, we read that the king at the time, the uh, the ruling leader, was Herod, the king of Judea. And during his reign, so we know the setting of when this happened, during his reign, a certain priest 
existed named Zacharias. Zacharias. And it says, I have the New King James here in front of me. I read from the King James, but the New King James says he was of the division of Abijah, of Abijah. And the first question, when I first sat down to, to study this passage, the first question I asked is, why is that even important? And what does that even mean? He's of the division of Abijah. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just mention to you, because I thought it was interesting, and I like knowing the answers to the questions I have when I read the Bible, is that in 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 10, it records the story of how David caused that the priests be divided into various divisions. In 1 Chronicles chapter 24, it talks about the fact that the sons of Aaron, he had four sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Nadab and Abihu obviously died because they offered unauthorized worship to God and God struck them dead. So there were only two sons of Aaron left, Eleazar and Ithamar. And what David tells the people, the leaders, is to take those sons and their leaders and divide them into 24 divisions, 24 groups of people. And if you were to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 24 and verse 10, you would see that the eighth division is the division of Abijah. So what we learn about Zacharias is that Zacharias comes from a priestly heritage and that he was from the eighth division. And what that means is that Zacharias, when it came to his turn to serve in the temple would go with his group of people and they, with his group, his division, and they would, they would work, if you will, in the temple for a week. The tradition tells us that each group, they were on a rotation where they would work for a week at a time. And so twice a year, Zacharias' group would travel to Jerusalem where they would serve in the temple for a week. So he was of the eighth division and he would go and serve for one week twice a year. He's married, and he has a wife whose name is Elizabeth. And the setting here is that they are in a time where things have basically been the same for the last 400 years, other than there have been some upheaval in the Jewish people, you know, with the Maccabean revolt, things like that. But ultimately, nothing has changed as far as the revelation of God. There's been no revelation from God. There's only been natural providence going on where God is using the natural order of events and things are happening just as we see today, where we're not getting a message from God from a prophet. We have the Word of God. At that point, that's all they had. They only had the Word of God, and they're worshiping and serving God as best they can in the 400 years between the last time they heard from God, from a prophet, to where they are now. So that's the setting. The setting is a very normal time for them. When Zacharias goes up to the temple to, to com commit his duties— He's not expecting anything unusual to happen. Just like when you came to services this morning, I don't think you came here expecting some kind of grand miracle to happen. He's just going to perform his duties for a week, as was required by the, the, the law here, and he was going to go back. Who were the servants here, though? In verse 6, we read, first of all, of Zecharias and Elizabeth. And here is what Luke describes them as. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord, blameless. 
Luke is not suggesting that these people are sinless. We know theologically that's not what's going on. But what we are seeing is two people who love God and are serving God together. They are righteous before God in the sense that they are as best as they possibly can following the law of God. He is a priest, so he's doing everything he can to obey the word of the Lord. She is of the daughters of Aaron. She has a priestly heritage or ancestry, if you will, as well. And so she is trying to worship and serve God alongside her husband. And they've been doing so their entire lives. And what I will have you to note, and this is important for part of this story, is that they are well-versed in the Bible. They know the Word of God. Zacharias knows the promises of God that there would be a Messiah who would come. Elizabeth knows about the reality of God's faithfulness to Israel repeatedly throughout Israel's history. Zacharias and Elizabeth both know the results of unbelief. Because what happens to Israel every time they turn from Yahweh, the one true God, to follow Baal and any other pagan God you can think of? God chastises them for their unbelief and their unfaithfulness. Zacharias and Elizabeth are well-versed in this, and they are trying as much as they possibly can to yield themselves to God, to be righteous before him in obeying what he has said and being blameless in the ordinances That he has given. But for a Jewish person, here was a problem in their life. In verse 7, we read, they had no child. This was a problem in Jewish culture. For them, the blessing of God could be easily seen and known if you had been blessed with children. Because in that culture, unlike ours, it was a very family dependent culture. There wasn't so much individuality as there is in our American context. So for Zacharias and Elizabeth, there's no heir. There's no child who can take the things that they have and inherit it. There's no child who can care for them in their old age. And ultimately, in Jewish thought, even though these people are described by Dr. Luke as righteous and blameless, the frown of God must be upon them for some reason because they have no children. And this is a question again for Zacharias and Elizabeth because they have to be wondering, we're doing everything we can, Lord. We're trying to be faithful to you. We're trying to serve faithfully. And here you are. You're not blessing us with children. What's going on? Even Job Job, the man of God who we read in the Holy Scriptures, was blameless and righteous and was following you and worshiping you and being as faithful to you as he possibly could be, even he was blessed with double the children he had before after his whole ordeal that he had. What's going on with us? And sometimes we can mistake our life circumstances to be something it's not. It could have been easy for Zacharias and Elizabeth to say, we're trying to be as faithful as we can, but we have no kids, so guess what? There must be something in my life that's wrong. They could have instantly been thinking, somehow we must have done something in our past or our parents done something in their past that's caused this judgment to fall upon us. And that was typical for Jewish thought because you'll remember 
when Jesus with his disciples are walking along and they see a man who is blind from his birth, what do the disciples ask Jesus? Who sinned that this guy was born blind? There's no way this guy could have been born blind as a righteous person and his parents were righteous. So God is judging them for some reason. Who sinned? Was it him? Like, did God look forward in, in time and see something he was going to do? And so he said, I'm just going to preemptively punish him, and I'm going to make him born blind. Or was it his parents? Did his parents do something that displeased God so drastically that he said, fine, I'll give you a child, but your child will be blind. He'll be useless to you. He won't be able to have a job. He'll be begging in the streets. He will not be able to care for you in your old age. This was consistently the mind of Jewish people. So when we read in verse 7 that this righteous couple who's faithful to God have no child, and then add on top of it, they're both well advanced in age. They're well stricken in years, as the King James says. The people who read the Gospel of Luke are wondering, what's the disconnect? Why is it that these people who are righteous before God seemingly are being judged by him. Do not fall prey to that thinking. While we should be careful and introspective, and that perhaps things that happen in our lives are in fact because of the chastising hand of God, do not immediately assume that if somebody has something going on in their life that is a challenge or difficult, do not immediately assume that it is the judgment of God upon them. Because that was not the case here for John and Elizabeth. What was actually happening, and I believe Luke is trying to say this, as he's about to say for the next two chapters, is that everything that happened here was, it was literally done for the express purpose of seeming to make it, make it impossible for the Messiah to come. But he's going to say later on in verse 37, with God nothing will be impossible. Our belief in the integrity and promises of God does not depend on our understanding of it. It does not depend on our feelings about it. The truthfulness of God's word and his promises rests in his integrity, not in our unbelief. So, the servants Zacharias and Elizabeth they have a problem. They don't have children. And now they're too old to have children. So this is part of the setting in the servants. There's one servant. We'll mention him in just a moment. But continuing on in verse 8, as now it is the week for Zacharias's division to go serve in the temple in Jerusalem, that he was going, and in verse 9, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn the incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. They simply cast lots to see whose turn it would be in that division to go and burn the incense before the Lord. And as the Lord in his providence worked it out, it, the lot fell upon Zacharias. And so as he goes in, there's a whole multitude of people who are praying outside at the hour of incense. The people are praying. They're worshiping God together. This is, a, this is a very great moment for the people of Israel because this is the moment when God is being worshiped and the temple is the symbol of the presence of God. Here God is coming down to meet with his people and the priest is going in to burn a sweet-smelling savor unto the Lord. 
And this is all normal. This had happened just the week before. And the week before that, they're worshiping the Lord. So Zacharias walks in to fulfill his holy duties as a priest. And he's not expecting any different. We came into this service not expecting anything supernatural or crazy to happen. Zacharias didn't either that day when he walked in to fulfill his duties. But verse 11 tells us about another servant of the Lord. Because it says, The angel of the Lord appeared to him standing in the right side of the altar of incense. Imagine being Zacharias, walking in, expecting nobody else to be there, knowing that this is a very sacred moment when you are worshiping God. The people outside are all praying, and you walk in, and you're not expecting somebody there, and suddenly somebody is there. The terror that instantly must have gripped him. I mean, you and I know what it's like to, you're walking around a corner, and you're not expecting somebody there, and there's a start. That's just a human being. That happens to me all the time. Back, If you know where our offices are, it happens to me all the time. I'll be coming back from getting a cup of coffee and either you know, one of our staff members will be coming around and I'm not expecting it and it just startles me every single time. I don't know why. That's just a human reaction to another human. Here's Zacharias and he sees an angel of the Lord. An angel who will describe himself in a moment as one who stands in the presence of God. At times, angels can conceal their identity, as it were, but here I don't believe that is the case. I believe that this angel was reflecting or refracting the refulgent, the shining glory of God as he stood there in the temple. And the response of Zacharias is the one that we would have in verse 12. When Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. I think we as people particularly in the United States of America, because we're so ingrained with scientific, natural explanations for things, that we sometimes waltz casually into the presence of God. Just last night, I happened to be scrolling on Twitter, and I saw a post by the preacher and theologian John Piper who was quoting from a verse in Hebrews talking about worshiping God in reverence and awe, and he made the comment, do, do we go into the presence of God casually? You know, are we coming to church on Sunday too casual? And the people who are commenting on it were just going insane because they were suggesting that he's being too legalistic. He's being, he's being unrealistic and, and how we as Christians should be able to come into the presence of God in any way that we want to, to the glory of God. But frankly, I'm kind of a very sympathetic to what he's saying. I think we view God almost like he's like us. And even though angels are also creatures, they stand in the presence of God. And repeatedly, when you see these angels talking to the messengers of God, the servants of God here on earth, there's something about the look of the angelic creature who's standing in the presence of God that causes a sinful human being, to tremble. And it's not because of the angel himself, although the angel, of course, is probably a creature that's hard for our minds to envision right now since we haven't seen an angel. 
But I think it's mostly because the angels are in the presence of God and they reflect his glory. And even though you're not looking at God directly, you are looking at a refracted sliver of the shining, brilliant glory of God. And if we were to see that, I really do believe our worship of God, our view of God, would be transformed completely. I believe we would not waltz so casually into the presence of God. I believe that we would give him the reverence and all he deserves. So when Zacharias sees an angel, he doesn't say, Hey, where have you been for the last 400 years, pal? It says he was troubled and he feared. And the angel says to him in verse 13, Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Your prayer is heard, Zacharias. You have been praying for a child, much like your patriarch Abraham, who prayed for the promise of the son. You've been praying for a child repeatedly. Like Hannah in 1 Samuel, you have been praying for the child that you've desperately wanted to the glory of God. So don't fear, Zacharias. I am here not to scare you, but to give you a message from God. And in this moment, 400 years of silence ended. Now God is revealing himself to his people again. And here is this this message. There will be a prophet again. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you will call his name John. After 400 years of silence, once again, there will be a prophet in Israel and this prophet will be your son, Zacharias. And your wife will bear you a son and he will bring you, verse 14, great joy and gladness and many people will rejoice at his birth. Zacharias, this is not a moment to be afraid. This is a moment to find joy and gladness because God has broken his silence. He is sending a prophet again and that prophet will be your own son. And this son, what will be the character of him? He will be great in the sight of the Lord. This is somebody who will have preeminence in Israel because of God's view of him. And what will God do? He, he will make sure that he does not drink wine or strong drink and he'll be filled with God's Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This prophet is going to be unique. He will be someone God will use to accomplish his unique purpose. And the purpose we'll look at in a moment, but I do want to say it looks as though this young man who would become the prophet would be one who would take a a Nazarite vow where he would not drink any kind of wine or strong drink and rather instead he would be controlled not with the external influences of alcohol, but rather with the empowering, enlivening spirit of God. And what will be his purpose? The angel says in verse 16, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That is John's purpose. Turn people back to the one true God. 
That is his goal. And he's, gonna, he's going to be as though he were the next Elijah, it says in verse 17, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Why? To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His purpose really was twofold. His purpose was to cause the people to turn to God. And his second purpose was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. He had a twofold purpose, and that purpose would be to glorify God and cause people to turn to him, as well as to make people prepared for the coming of the Messiah. And he quotes from Malachi chapter 4 there when he says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. He wants to bring about these people who will be prepared for the coming of the Lord and cause the fathers to prepare their children and their children and their children and their children and generation after generation to receive the Messiah. This was the wondrous announcement from God after 400 years of silence. This is amazing, astounding. Imagine now Zacharias hearing this message. And it's almost too good to be true. He hears this wonderful message of the coming of the Messiah. Of the fact that this future son that he's about to have with his own wife, this future son would be the prophet who prepared the way for that Messiah. And he gets hung up on the fact that this message cannot possibly happen. This is too good to be true. There's no way this could be true. So what does he respond in verse 18? He says to the angel, how will I know this? This doesn't seem right. My cognitive thinking is saying there's no way this could possibly happen. It's like you're telling me I want a pickup truck and I can't believe that this is actually true. There's no way. There's no way. Here's his reasoning. Think about this, Mr. Angel. I don't know what your name is yet, but I'm an old man. And the King James, my wife is well stricken in years. I don't intend to ever describe Laura that way. I promise you that. My wife is well advanced in years. There's no way we're going to have kids. Remember what I said. This is a man who knows theology. He knows the scriptures. He knows that exactly what he's saying is exactly what Abraham said. When God gave him the promise that there would be a promised son. And Abraham didn't believe it either. Sarah in her tent laughs because she can't believe it either. Here is a man who should know better. Here's a man who should know that when God makes a promise, when God announces a message, that he will, in fact, perform it. But Zacharias takes everything he knows and throws it out the window in this moment. Because he says, in my brain, angel, there's no way this is going to happen. And before you and I castigate and throw stones at Zacharias, you and I do this almost every day. Where we know the promises of God, we know the word of God, and we won't believe it. Anytime you and I give in to our flesh, anytime we give in to our sin, what are we in effect doing? We're saying, I don't believe God anymore. I don't want him anymore. 
I know that I'm supposed to be, str- be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, but you know what? I'd rather be strong in Rodney and be in the power of his own might. I don't want to believe that I have all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ in this moment. I'd rather have this little fleeting moment of pleasure of sin. I know that it's wrong for me to be angry and bitter. And I know the Bible has clearly said that, but you know what? I'm just going to cling to it. I know that it's wrong for me to go and mess around with somebody else, either before marriage or even when I'm in marriage. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I'm just going to do it anyways. I know that I'm supposed to step out in obedient faith, but you know what? I'm going to be anxious and fear. I'm not going to remember the promises of God. I know that in this moment I'm not thinking rationally, but it doesn't matter. I'd rather just worry about this because I want to have the control of the situation and not give it to God. You and I do this every day where we stagger at the promise of God. So before we throw stones at Zacharias, how about we throw stones at ourselves? Zacharias knows theology. You know theology. Zacharias knew the scriptures. You know the scriptures. And repeatedly, like Zacharias, we are prone to forget, or as the hymn writer put it, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. How often we forget the promises of God and all like the doubtful servant, Zacharias. What is the assurance that Zacharias has given that these are true? Well, I have to go through this quickly, but I think I'm going to be able to get through it. The response here in verse 19, the angel says to him, and I bet you this angel is staring right at Zacharias, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of Almighty God, and I was sent by that Almighty King to come to you to give you The good news, the evangelizo, the wonderful news that I've just given to you. And you are doubting me? You're questioning whether or not this is going to happen? I stand in the presence of God. I am reflecting a sliver of his glory in front of you in this very moment. And you have the audacity to say, God, prove to me that you are going to do what you say you're going to do. The angel says, behold, you're going to be mute. And you're not going to be able to speak until these days, until the day these things take place, until you see the fulfillment of that promise. Why? Here was the problem, and follow me carefully in verse 20. Because you did not believe my words. The danger of unbelief is is incredible. If you and I do not believe what God has said, there is great peril. Beginning, first of all, with the gospel. The gospel says that there is a holy, righteous God who created all of us to be worshipers of him. And yet, in our sin, we said, no, no thanks, God. I'm going to go my own way. I want to be my own God. I want to be my own king. I will not worship you. And ever since then, we as humans have been hiding from God, running away from God, wanting nothing to do with God. And yet God, in mercy and kindness, is pursuing us. And he did so 
through illustration in Israel, where he pursued his people who were repeatedly rebelling against him and bucking against his authority and refusing to obey him and refusing to worship him alone, but were worshiping other gods. And God continued to pursue sinful humanity in sending Jesus Christ to earth to live the righteous life that the law demands, that God's holy law demands, but we can't. And he actively obeyed his Father, and he passively obeyed his Father in his sufferings and his passion. And he was killed on a cross, and he rose again three days later, even as he promised, so that all those, as Paul says, who confess Jesus as Lord and believe in their heart God has raised him from the dead, they will be saved. If we do not believe that message, there is great peril. If you're sitting in this room and you do not believe this message, there is great peril. There was an angel who stands in the presence of holy God and he said, believe me, I see the Almighty One. This is true. Don't doubt my message. He is a good God, a gentle father to his children, but to those who rebel, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So I believe if angel, the angel Gabriel were given the permission by Almighty God to preach to you this morning, his words would be very similar to what he says to Zacharias. Listen to me carefully. I stand in the presence of God. He is a majestic, beautiful, wonderful God. But if you do not believe him, if you remain in your unbelief, there is great peril. Because of your sinfulness, his judgment will come. So I'm appealing to you today, if you do not know Jesus, if you have not embraced Jesus, the important thing for you is to believe the message of the gospel. But I would imagine most of us in here have believed that message. There still is great peril for us to fall back into unbelief, where we know the promises of God, but like Zacharias we slip into pride. We slip into, I want to know how this is going to work out. What will we do? Will we be like Zacharias and say, I don't, I don't believe this. I'm taking all the theology I know, all the Bible I know, I'm throwing it out in this moment, and I want you to do something for me, God. The response the angel gave to Zacharias was, you're going to be dumb until you see it happen. And for nine months, you will not be able to speak, but simply watch God work. I ask you and appeal to you to not be like Zacharias in this moment, but to live with the belief that the promises of God are sure and secure. If God says there will be a day when Jesus Christ comes back, Regardless of the world saying, where is he? We haven't seen him. Everything's continued the same way it has since time began. Do not waver in your belief. If God says that he will strengthen you with the power of his might when you embrace him and cling to Christ, believe him. And when God says, I will chasten those whom I love, believe him and obey so the people then, as we finish with the result here, the people see as they're waiting that Zacharias is taking his sweet old time in there and 
Some of them are probably thinking, what's going on? Is he okay? Did he walk in with unclean hands? Is he dead? And the people waited for him and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple, but when he came out, he couldn't say anything. And they understood instantly something happened in there. He can't talk. He, he started out here talking to us, worshiping the Lord with us together. He walked in to perform his duties. He was in there a long time. He came out and he can't say a word now. He saw something. And I wonder how many of those people wondered, is God going to speak to us again? They perceived that he saw a vision, but he couldn't talk to them. So after he finishes his week of service, he goes back to his house. And even as God had promised, through his messenger and servant Gabriel the angel, that Elizabeth conceived. And she hid herself for five months, saying, Thus has God dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. God has blessed me. God has blessed me. Here is a story of the beginnings of this Messiah who would come. And it begins with promises. This story, Luke could have completely left out. Remember, he's a historian. He could have started with the next section, the message from Gabriel to Mary. But he doesn't. And I think the reason why is he wants us to see that the promises of God went long before the message to Mary. And that the promises of God were even longer and much longer before Zacharias had seen this message. Luke is trying to tell Theophilus and you and me that the promises of God began way before this. And that God was now, in fact, fulfilling his promise. And he's probably talking to Theophilus, who has questions in his mind. Is this the one true God? Is, are we following Jesus? Is he really the only one, or are there others? He's, Theophilus is wavering, probably, in his belief. And here, Luke begins with a story of somebody who wavered in his belief in the promise of God. And he used this story, I believe, to bolster the faith of Theophilus and you and me, not to stagger at the promises of God, but even as Alex read in our scripture reading, to be like Abraham, who staggered not at the promises of God, but believed that God was able to fulfill what he said he would do. Are you believing the promises of God? For those of you who need to believe the gospel, that is step one. The promise of God is that if you believe in your heart, God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as Lord, you will be saved. That is his assurance. That is his promise. You do not have to waver in that. And for those of us who are believers, our consistent life of obedience and belief should be the mark, the hallmark of followers of Jesus. And if there are moments when we do waver, then we should be like the man who cried to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the goodness that you display to us feeble and fickle creatures that at times we may think certain things you tell us are too good to be true. But that you give us examples of people who failed 
but used their failures to instruct us. I can only imagine what it was like for Zacharias to hear the message from you and to wonder if it was true. Lord, I pray for any person in this room who has heard the message of the gospel and wonders, is Christianity the right religion? Are the truth claims within it true? Lord, take your Holy Spirit and open the eyes of those people who are wavering, wondering if it's true. Help them to see the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to know with assurance that it is the true path to salvation to all who believe. As Christians, Lord, forgive us when we do act in ways that demonstrate our unbelief in your word. And give us a bolstering of our faith so that we might know that you are indeed telling us the truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.